Let's uh, turn in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 12. As we continue in our study through the book of Revelation, we've come to this 12th chapter. Most of the book of Revelation is concerning a period of time called the tribulation, or the time of pressure. It's a time in the future where God puts the squeeze on the planet in an attempt to draw the holdouts to himself, to put pressure on people so that they will realize they have a choice, they have an option. And many of them get saved during this time, but it's a painful time as well. And so as we've been studying through it with all the plagues and everything, we come to kind of a break, chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, deal with some key characters within this whole tribulation period. So they aren't chronological, they're more big picture descriptions of some of the characters who will be key in this uh, period of history. And in uh, chapter 11 last week, we looked at the two witnesses and um, their role. And here in chapter 12, we see a woman and a child and a dragon. And those are some interesting characters. Later on, next week in chapter 13, we see the, this beast that comes from the sea, another one that comes from the earth. Chapter 14, the uh, 144,000, another look at them and some angels and, and the preparation for the unfolding ultimately of the final judgment. So we're in one of those transitions. Um, chapter 12 just happens to fall on Mother's Day, and I think it's, it's kind of... I, I, I was going to print up a Mother's Day card um, with some of these first few verses on it. And I just imagine this. There's a card, a little heart on it or whatever, and it says, Now a great sign, a symbol, appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven head, heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so I don't know, it has a nice ring to it. I'm certain I'm the only pastor on Mother's Day that this is the text. <laughs> but this is what we do. We're going through the Bible and we came to it and it was just... You know, I'm sure God had his hand a little, I'm sure he was laughing when he saw what I was going to be teaching on. Um, it, it, it says that this is a great sign, um, and so this isn't something to be taken purely literal. You should expect this to be symbolic of something when it introduces it with that kind of a picture. But you have this woman, um, and you have to wonder, okay, who is this woman who's having a child? And we're going to see as we read down, the child turns out to be the Messiah or Jesus. And so there are only a, a few different explanations. Now, there are many people today who interpret this as saying the woman is the church. But the woman can't be the church because the church doesn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. So you could scratch that one off your list. The only other two suspects are... The, um, the Roman church says that this is Mary. And this, you can understand coming up with this being Mary because Mary gave birth to the Messiah. And so that's one possibility. 
I don't think that's who it is, simply because as you read on the description of what happens to this woman after she gives birth, that she's protected in the wilderness and attacked by Satan and everything, that's really a stretch because we don't certainly know of Mary having an experience like that. So the other explanation and the most likely one is this is a picture of the nation Israel who gave birth to the Messiah. Now over in Genesis chapter 37, you can read it later, Joseph had a couple of dreams. And in the first one, there were these sheaves of wheat that bowed down to him and they represented his, his brothers. But then in the next dream, he had a dream and he said, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to me. And his dad said, wait a minute. When you are having dreams about 11 sheaves bowing down to you, you're better than your brothers, okay. But now you're saying that your mother and I, the sun and the moon, and your brothers are all bowing down to you and doing obeisance to you. You're getting a little too cocky, buddy. Maybe I've spoiled you. And so it would make sense if, if, in fact, if you just go with that Genesis 37 passage, that Israel, the nation as a whole, could be depicted as a woman, as it often is. But in this case, with the 12 stars, the tribes of Israel, um, and then the mother and father of Israel being central to it. So if you read the rest of the passage, it would seem... Um, fairly clear that that is what it is. But there have been cults who came along and said, you know, like Mary Baker Eddy claimed she was the woman. Maybe you think you're the woman. Uh, fine, you know, but, but um, my take is it's most likely Israel, as we'll see as we go through the passage. And then the dragon, obviously, uh, is a reference to Satan because that's going to be defined later in the passage as we go through. So this, this image of him a fiery dragon, just a ferocious being, with seven heads, seven being the number of completion. Probably the meaning of this symbol is that he was very intelligent. We know that he was and is, and so these, this complete knowledge of, of things that most people don't have, uh, he is seen as that. He has ten horns later, and then also back in Daniel chapter 7, we see the final revival of the Roman Empire, that flows forth, described as the ten toes of the feet or as ten horns. Um, and so horns represent power. The, uh, the enemy, Satan, is somebody who's going to come and empower the leaders in the last days in order to, including the little horn, the Antichrist. And so this is referring to the basis of his power. The seven crowns that he was wearing on his seven heads are the self appointed, self-anointed claims to royalty that he has. He, he bought himself crowns and put them on his head. You know, he's a self-made ruler, basically. Never really was a king of anything, but he wanted to be, and so he wore the hat. And so, obviously, he wanted to devour the child as soon as it was born because Satan knew that there was going to be a child born who would destroy him. It was prophesied clear back in Genesis chapter 3 that a seed would come from the woman who you would bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Satan could read, and throughout scriptures, promises moving forward of, 
a Messiah who would be born of a woman. And it began to narrow it down and even talk about where he would be born in Bethlehem and when he would be born, counting the days according to Daniel chapter 9 of when he would present himself as the Messiah. And so naturally doing the calculations um, that, well, the wise men were able to figure it out, roughly where he was and when he came, and Satan certainly knew this as well, and it was his desire to destroy him, thus motivating Herod the Great to try to destroy all the young babies, all the young boys, in order to try to stop God from doing what he had said he was going to do. Satan continued to attack Jesus, to tempt him, to try to dissuade him, even as he was ready to go to the cross, to kind of wrestle with him there in the garden and force him to struggle. And, and so clearly this is what he wants. And, and, and when you see this in relationship to Israel, you can understand why it is that anti-Semitism is so rampant. Why do people hate Jews so much? And it's always been that way. And, and Jews have brought so much blessing to the world they're so, they're, they dominate when it comes to artistic expression. They dominate when it comes to, to uh, scientific accomplishments in so many ways. And yet people hate the Jews. Well, people hate the Jews because the devil hates the Jews. Because he knows that it's this woman, it's this, it's this nation, it's these special chosen people who gave birth to the Messiah. And so here he's just angry with them, wants to devour the child. But it says in verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Um, Psalm 2 prophesied this, that he would rule with a rod of iron. Um, And you know that it's referring to Jesus because later in Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back on a white horse, he is said to be the one who will rule with a rod of iron. So Satan understood that. He can read the Bible. And so it says, uh, though, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Child was born, grew up. While he was still young, he ends up ascending into heaven. That doesn't stop Satan from hating him and taking it out on his followers, basically. And so the woman, it says, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, or three and a half years. So this woman, and if I'm right and it's Israel, this is a reference to during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, 1,260 days, that there are Jews, and and it's probably a reference to the 144,000 that we saw earlier, and we'll see again in chapter 14, they were supernaturally protected, taken off to a place where they could be safe. So part of Israel was saved at this point. They acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, and they're taken off into a safe place in the wilderness. We'll see a little bit more of that later in the chapter. There are people who believe that the place where they will be protected is the rock city of Petra, um, down south of the Dead Sea, down there in present-day Jordan. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting theory. It would be an interesting place for this to happen, but the Bible doesn't really pinpoint it. In Petra, there are people who have buried tons of water and food and Bibles and, and uh, you know, left-behind videos and everything else for these Jews that they perceive that are going to be there in Petra, but they're kept safe somewhere. And so this is happening as the worst part of the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation, is taking place. And then we see in verse 7, 
A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels, so Michael was the archangel and he had angels with him, who fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. But the dragon and his angels didn't prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, this depiction of Satan being cast to earth is problematic in completely understanding what he's talking about here. Because there was a time historically when Satan was thrown out of heaven along with the demons. And from this passage, we assume that a third of the angels the, you know, who became demons fell with Satan. Satan got puffed up, wanted to be God, rebelled against him, and was cast out. And so that had to have happened at some point in history before Satan tempted Eve, uh, assumably. Now, we don't have much in the scripture about that. It's alluded to in Isaiah chapter 14 and in Ezekiel chapter 28, and probably here as well. So Satan was cast to earth. But this seems to be, in, if, as you sort it through, it seems to be more than just a depiction of Satan's past fall because it's going to be said he's been deceiving people and now he can't deceive them anymore. And, and so this is probably an event that happens maybe in the middle of the tribulation period, perhaps at the beginning of the tribulation, where Satan is even further limited. We know that he still has access to God even today because it's said that he is accusing us before God. We also know that, that we are being defended by Jesus at the same time. Um, we know from the book of Job that Satan and his demons were able to come to God and make accusations against Job. So even though his, his place in heaven was greatly affected and he can't live there, he apparently to this day, and again, we have admittedly few scriptures to really shed light on it, but it would seem that he has limited access. And this passage may be giving the big picture of his being thrown from heaven, but it's also talking about a time in the future when things are going to get a lot worse on earth because now he is completely eliminated from the heavenly realm. And so now it would seem that all of his attention is focused on who he can destroy down here. Um, so not easy to sort out. And I'm not 100% dogmatic or clear. See, the thing is, it's talking about Israel in the past is talking about Jesus being born, ascended into heaven, all that's past. So we're getting the big picture. And then we're seeing this fall of Satan, perhaps a, a, at least a twofold fall, where he fell back before somehow in the beginning of Genesis or even before Genesis 1-1, perhaps. Um, then we see that there's this battle and he is eliminated from access to heaven in the tribulation period. He's also cast down into the bottomless pit at the beginning of the millennium, and then he's released for a short time and finally thrown into the lake of fire. So in a sense, he's thrown down four times. It's almost like he's being dribbled. And so, you know, just being defeated. But so here he is, and we're going to get back and talk about him later. But when he 
this happens, it says in verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Satan being defeated was a cause for great celebration in heaven among God's people. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives to the death. And we will come back to that. I think it's the heart of this chapter. But in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. The devil's really mad now because the noose is tightening around his neck. He knows that it's almost over. He can read the Bible and he knows what's going to happen to him. So he's just really mad. So he takes it out on the only people he can take it out on, people left on the earth. And he tries to destroy the believers who are here, but a lot of them he can't get to. Um, He's just angry. It's this last defiant exercise that explains a lot of what happens during especially this last three and a half years of the tribulation period when Satan inspires an antichrist and a false prophet to go and defile the temple and all the horrible things that are done during this time uh, and him taking credit for them uh, is just the last gasps of a desperate dirtbag. And so now, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, or for three and a half times, three and a half years, another way of stating the 1260 days. And so she's taken care of there and she's nourished. The wings of a great eagle take her there. That was a common image that God used in the Old Testament to talk about, you know, like for instance in Isaiah 40, 31, they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. Some people take this and say that there are giant aircraft, maybe a fleet of C-130s that gather these 144,000 and fly them to their place. If that's the truth, they'd have a hard time landing on the city of Petra. But somehow they're delivered. Somehow he takes them to a safe place where they are fed, where he can't get to them. And so, verse 15, the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. That could be a literal flood in the wilderness, in the desert. There in the Middle East, some radical flash floods happened. Um, Or it could be, remember this is a symbol, so it could be an image of tons of armies going after them. But... The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. During the tribulation period, we've seen how many earthquakes are going to happen. Out there in that crusty desert land, when an earthquake hits, it opens huge chasms that close again. And so whatever this is, water or armies, they're swallowed up by the earth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, 
either a reference to those Jews who became Christians and who weren't sealed, weren't a part of the 144,000, or perhaps a reference to Gentiles who had accepted Christ during this day. But it describes them as those who keep the commandments of God, so that would be language that would generally indicate Jews. And they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, chapter 12, we see going all the way back to the beginning, the, the fact that God's promised Messiah was someone that the devil hated and would try to destroy. And Satan was, was prideful and, and arrogant, and as a result, he was thrown out of heaven. So he tries to do as much damage on earth as he can. And he's waited and tried to stop the Messiah from doing what he came to do, to die, but he couldn't, couldn't do that. And so now he's in heaven, he turns his attention on those who, who gave birth to the Messiah, to try to kill the whole religion that led to the whole significance of who Jesus was. And so we come to this tribulation period, and Satan would love to destroy what God is doing among his people, because the tribulation is a time when especially God wants to save Jews. And so the church has been removed, I believe. So the, Satan is trying to do the best he can. God protects these people. 144,000 sealed Jews are protected. God's taking care of her. So the devil gets mad and he just takes it out on anybody that he can who is a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's an overall picture of Satan's role in the tribulation period and actually in all of history. So what does this have to do with us who aren't going to see this happen? I mean, this is what's going to happen. And, but the reason why, and in all of these chapters here in the middle that are, that are character describers, there's a reason why it's here. And this chapter is here to show us who Satan is. It describes his motivation. It describes his character. It talks about his origin. It tells about his ultimate demise. All of this is described here so that we know who he is. We, we don't have to be ignorant. He is Satan. He's called Satan, which is uh, the Hebrew word that just means he's against you. Um, he is called the devil, diabolos in the Greek. Diablo, the word in Spanish, means the same thing, devil. That means somebody who is, against, is, is trying to destroy you. Um, balo in the Greek means to throw, and dia is something that means through or across. And it's the idea that he's just trying to throw the kitchen sink at you. He is driving at you in order to ruin you. He's called the dragon, speaking of this anger and power that he has. He's called the serpent. He's called the, the one who came in the beginning and beguiled and fooled women. So you have this, you have this description, but what I want us to take away from this in the time that we have left is the key ultimately is Satan does not have to defeat you. In fact, it's possible to defeat Satan. And it says, these people overcame him. The word there means to conquer. It's the same word Nike that Nike uses to refer to their products. Something that wins, something that conquers. And it's possible to defeat Satan. 
And if we read these verses, we can figure out the clue and the key as to how we can defeat Satan from ruining our lives. So to me, these are some of the most important verses in the Bible, really. Now, first thing we learn about him, you have to learn his MO first. In verse 9, it points out he is the one who deceives the whole world. Satan is a liar. He's really good at it. In fact, Jesus called him the father of lies. He's like, this guy is good at fooling you. This guy is good at making you think something that isn't true. The truth is, for most of us, we live our lives often believing the wrong things and and being conned into doing things that even in our head, we know they don't make sense. It's this self-defeating behavior that the Bible calls sin that robs us of our destiny, that keeps us from everything that God wants us to have. And so we keep making the same mistakes. We keep going against what God says and proving over and over again that God is right. We just destroy ourselves and destroy each other, and it's because we're fooled. It's because somehow we believe lies. Satan is the one who lies. We need to be skeptical and question everything that we hear because Satan is lying a lot. And most of the time, what most people think is a lie. The majority of people is almost always wrong. And so we become susceptible. If you just ask all your friends what they think, and that's what you think, you're going to believe a lot of crazy stuff. Because people are mixed up because Satan's a really good liar. But the second thing we see about him, and is even more to the point, in verse 10... He says, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. As they sing the song of praise for the elimination of Satan, he gets down to the fact that, you know what? He is the accuser. Now, this word for accuse is the word, it, it really means, it's really the word category. It, it literally in the, in the Greek, is transliterated to the word category. But it was a word that they used to refer to somebody who was on the witness stand, and you were cross-examining them, try to prove them to be wrong. But it also, the word ended up developing into category because when people accuse you, they are trying to place you in a category. They are trying to say, you are just this. And, and that defeat that comes from feeling that somebody is judging you, accusing you, categorizing you, that is the work of the devil. That is what he wants to do in a nutshell. And and so that's why there's a celebration. Accusations are finally over. Anyone who accuses anyone of anything is doing, especially of a Christian, is doing part of the work of the devil. It's what he loves to do. And so you can recognize it when it happens. Now, accusations are are horrible things. And there are two kinds of accusations. Sometimes people are accusing you of something you're guilty of. Other times they are accusing you of something you are innocent of. And sometimes they're accusing you of something that you maybe are partly guilty, but not completely. Satan loves that. Because to be accused puts you in a no-win situation. If they're accusing you of something that you're guilty of, it just rubs your nose in it. 
And, and if they're accusing you of something you're not guilty of or partially guilty of, you feel obligated to defend yourself. And as soon as you defend yourself against accusations, you're giving credibility to the accusations. And the people who are accusing you will knowingly say, boy, you're sure being defensive. Well, you're attacking me and you're not wanting me to be defensive. That's weird. But on the other hand, if you don't defend yourself, your silence seems to state that, oh, you're taking the Fifth Amendment, huh? That must mean you're guilty. So accusations against brethren present a no-win situation. It's a horrible thing. And, and, I, and I think if you think about it, how much of the misery and pain in your life comes from accusation, comes from the judgments that people are making on you, the things that they're saying about you behind your back or to your face. Some people think that, you know, yeah, I'm accusing you, but I'm going to, after I tell everybody else about it, I'm also going to come to you. That way I'm not, you know, doing anything wrong. You know, spare me. If you want to accuse me, don't tell anybody to tell me about it. I don't, I'm not interested. But, but Satan is the one who goes after the Christians. Jesus his role right now, according to Hebrews, is he's at the right hand of the Father defending us. He is not a prosecuting attorney. He is a defense attorney. And so that's the difference. Doing the work of Satan is accusing and categorizing brethren. Doing the work of God is defending those who belong to him. One of the questions I put in the discussion questions this week had to do with, imagine what your life would be like if no one was going to accuse you of anything. If you messed up and nobody pointed it out or rubbed your nose in it or judged you or lectured you about it, and if nobody ever again would look at what you do and guess what you're doing and, and start to put two and two together and come up with 12, and you know what would your life be like without accusation? Accusation, to a huge extent, not only is the strategy of Satan, but it's that which wears us out every day of our lives. Because we're torn down by other people's assessment of us, we are attacked by people, we're judged by people, and hey, if I mess up, which I do regularly, it doesn't help me for somebody to come and go, by the way, I noticed that. Um, and it's awful if somebody's saying things about me that aren't true, and even somebody who wants to help goes, just thought you'd know. A lot of people think a lot of bad things about you. Oh, thanks. That really is encouraging. That's what the devil does. So the question is, how do you defeat the devil? Because these people had victory over the devil. So how did they do it, and how can we do it? It says they overcame him, verse 11, First of all, by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus died for us. He shed his blood for us to forgive us, to make us clean. And as John said in 1 John chapter 1, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So understanding the forgiveness that's in Christ, understanding that he died for us, is a huge step in defeating the effects of accusation on us. Because if you are accusing me of something of which I'm completely guilty, that, you know, if you're going, boy, you say some things that really are offensive, I know. 
You're not the first one to point that out to me. I really, you should hear what I would say if I wasn't trying not to be offensive. <laughs> but you know what? Whatever you can pick away at me, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from that. I have received his forgiveness, and I stand in what he did for me on the cross. And so whether you want to believe what somebody says about me, whether you want to accuse me, whether you want to make judgments on me, you may be right, you may be wrong, or you may accuse me of things I don't do, but I may do much worse things that I'm sneaky about and you'll never find out about. At any rate, the blood of Jesus Christ is my defense, is my answer. I'm not, I'm not here to convince people that I'm a great guy. I'm here to convince people that my sins have been forgiven, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And walking in that and recognizing that is the reason why we shouldn't indulge in accusing people because if you're talking about what somebody has done, whether you're right or whether you're wrong, you're talking about something that Jesus died for. Do you understand that? I mean, the blood of Jesus Christ, it's huge. When we understand it, we will stop accusing, we'll stop doing the devil's work, and hey, we'll just receive that, you know, he, ultimately he is the one who goes to bat for me. He is defending me based on his blood. So let's get over accusations. Some are right, some are wrong, some aren't, are partially right, and partially, doesn't matter. Jesus died for you if you're his child then there is no place for accusation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So stand on the sacrifice that Jesus gave for you. Secondly, they overcame him by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony is basically their whole life story. This is something that it's good for us to review every once in a while because someone can find you where you are right now and you may be struggling. You may be going through a difficult time. And it just may feel, when you're so close up to the pain, you may feel like you're completely worthless. And someone is categorizing you based on what you've done lately. But for them, it was like, let's look at the big picture. Let's remember my testimony. Let's see where I've come from, from where I was, and where ultimately in the big picture, where I'm going to end up. My testimony is when I came to him being completely destitute, dead in my trespasses and sins. My testimony ends when I stand before him in heaven and receive rewards from him. Don't forget that story. Don't forget times when God has worked in your life in a supernatural way, even if you don't feel like he's doing a whole lot right now. Back up and get the big picture that's a way to defeat Satan because he can go, man, did you blow it yesterday? And you can go, yeah, but think about it. Think about all God's done. Look at where I am compared to where I used to be. And you know, get that eternal lifelong perspective. And that's the second way that you defeat the devil. And then finally it says, they did not love their lives to the death. This one's worded kind of funny. Um, but the idea of this is they weren't obsessed with their own life. They didn't have to feel like I have to fight to stay alive. I've said before, people who are afraid of dying should be afraid of being afraid of dying because it'll rob you of taking every chance that will allow you to discover life. 
knowing that when this life is over, I have an eternal life that's prepared for me, should cause me to not be so paranoid about what happens to me down here. Knowing that someday I'm going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, should make me not worry quite so much that somebody else decides that I'm a worthless human being, or that I'm a horrible pastor, or that I'm a bad this or an awful that. Hey, you know what? What my life is seeing here on the earth isn't something that I want to obsess over. It's not something that is the center of my awareness. It it tends to be that way for me to interpret the universe based on how it affects me. But in reality, when you get to the point where you, I mean, a good uh, loose interpretation of this statement would be they got over themselves. They just stopped worrying about themselves. They stopped just defending and hanging on to and thinking that it's all about them. And again, that's a third way that we can defeat Satan. Satan knows that he can hurt us by accusing us, especially because we're so sensitive about ourselves. And so if it's like, if it doesn't bother you, it's kind of like a bully. A bully goes after someone who acts like this really bothers me. If a bully goes and picks on somebody and they laugh it off, if a bully makes fun of someone and you're like, huh? Then they're going to find a better target. The devil is the ultimate bully. And when he knows that he can just ruin your day by having someone be critical of you, then he'll do it. Ultimately, we have to come to the conclusion, you know, I'm not as important as I thought I was. And you'd think, oh, you're putting yourself down. No, you're taking yourself out of the realm where now you have to fight for your dignity, fight for your life, fight for your respect, fight for your reputation. He's going, I don't care. You know, that's, yeah, things bother me. I'm human, but at the same time, I want to move in the direction of where these stupid accusations don't ruin my week. Where somebody says something about me, it doesn't just devastate me. That's my responsibility to decide that it's not about me that I realize if the Lord tarries 150 years after I'm gone, nobody's even going to remember me. You know, I'll have sermons that are out there in cyberspace somewhere, but, you know, nobody's going to really care about them. They're not going to get my messages because they refer to cultural things that won't even make any sense 150 years from now. And, you know, my kids will be gone, and, you know, my grandkids will be over me. And, you know, it's just, I'm going to leave a little ripple, that's all. So why should I act like it matters that much what people think of me? Why should I make myself vulnerable and give the devil an opportunity to devastate me? If I am devastated by accusations, then I am betraying the fact that I care too much about myself. And these guys got over it because they got over themselves. So the devil is going to accuse you of stuff this week. Some of you are the best accusers of yourself. You're highly self-critical. You feel guilty about everything. You're questioning your motives. You're feeling, you know, for some reason like, oh, I'm awful, I'm terrible, you beat yourselves up. You're doing the work of the devil on yourself. Some of you like doing that to others because it makes you feel better about yourself. You know, yeah, there are people out there a lot worse than me. You know what he's doing, you know what she's doing. Oh, pray for this. You know, and spiritualize gossip and destructive accusations. Make it include Satan in your mannerisms, in your spirituality. 
accusations come from the devil. And when that happens in yourself or in someone else, remember the blood of the lamb. Remember what Jesus did so that accusations wouldn't matter anymore. Remember your story. Look at all that God has done in your life. Look at what he has done in the past. His promise to you is that he'll finish what he has started. Your future is awesome. His plan is unfolding in your life. And use your story as a way to remind yourself, no, God's working. And it's all been by what he did on the cross. And then finally, it's a hard thing to say to people who are being devastated by accusation, but get over yourself. Don't set yourself up for that kind of pain by getting so offended every time the devil works in someone. You have God's promise that he will defend you. Whoever's accusing you, whether they're right or whether they're wrong, it doesn't even matter. If you are being accused, your Lord is defending you and he is saying the person doing the accusing is doing the work of the devil and someday the devil is going to be destroyed. Not saying with those people who have accused you, um, because even if they're brothers, their accusations are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Get that perspective, though, and you'll see Satan go down in a heap. You'll see him head off and work on someone else, because you have conquered him, you have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony, and the fact that your life isn't some treasure that you cling to. You don't care. Days are coming, days are going. You have a life that's eternal. What happens down here isn't that big of a deal to you. Satan will go nuts when you get a hold of those three concepts. And when we stop accusing each other, he's going to be really frustrated because the truth is he does his best accusing through Christians. That's why he's the accuser of the brethren. His best work is done in church in the way that Christians attack other Christians. And, and so let's not let him win. Let's do what it takes to see us get the victory over him and to conquer him. Because someday his doom is sure. He's going to be destroyed forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this promise. Thank you for your word. Lord, we're glad that you have Satan under your control and that you're tightening the noose around his neck and you're just about to finish him off. Help us to not help him. Help us to not cooperate and spiritualize our satanic attacks on our brothers, sisters. Help us to learn these keys to overcoming the devil in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you've never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, um, you can do that today. He died so that you could be forgiven. You can start over. Maybe you've just been overwhelmed by accusations and you just need somebody to pray with you to see all of that lifted, forgiven, and removed. And if that's you, come down to the front after the service. There are people down here who would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus Christ who loves you, who wants to forgive you, who wants to shield and protect you. That's what he does. May God give us a week of freedom, a week when we are not susceptible to the accusations that surround us because of the blood of Jesus, because of our story, 
And because ultimately and finally, he has us taken care of, we don't have to take care of ourselves. God bless.